what I'm saying is that all the information in the problems is there already, right? Oh, yeah, you don't need the hints to do them. Okay. No, you'll be fine. Okay, so we're talking about Fraunhofer diffraction, right, which is far field diffraction. And what we were looking at was, in fact, in the far field. We were looking at, I don't know, eight meters away from the, the apertures we were showing. Um, and we said that, just a little review from last time, that the transition from what we call the near field to the far field um, occurs gradually. And in the near field, the image of light going through some sort of mask or aperture is going to start off appearing just like an image of the aperture. Right? It's just a rectilinear propagation of light through a hard-edged aperture. As you get further and further away, the light sort of spreads out, interferes, and produces this far-field diffraction pattern. The distance over which that happens we called the Rayleigh range. And we said that that was equal to the area of the aperture divided by the wavelength. So let's calculate the Rayleigh range for the setup we had over there. Um, let's assume we have a 100 micron diameter pinhole and a wavelength of 632 nanometers. I don't feel like doing lots of math right now, so I'm just going to call pi over 4 equal to 1. Um, I think if you live in Indiana, pi is equal to 3. <laughs> okay. Um, and so let me call 6.32 for the sake of argument. Let me call that 10. So I have 10 to the minus 4 over 10 to the minus 6. which is 100 meters, uh, which is not 100 meters. I didn't square this. Pi d squared over 4. So that's 10 to the minus 8 over 10 to the minus 6. That's better. So 1 centimeter is the distance until we're in the far field. Okay, So we're clearly in the far field in this situation. If I open the area up to be, say, 1 millimeter, then the Rayleigh length becomes a meter. So we're still in the far field, but not nearly as far. And then if I go to a centimeter aperture, which that iris, when it's not closed down, starts off at about a centimeter diameter, then we have a 100 meter distance to the far field. So if I start with that aperture and I don't close it down at all, and assuming my beam is big enough to fill it, what I'll see on that is a one centimeter circle. I won't see a diffraction pattern. Because I'm essentially over here at a distance of zero relative to the Rayleigh length. I'd be at a distance of like less than 0.1 Rayleigh length. OK, so we use that to calculate how a Gaussian beam would look in the far field. We took this amplitude profile in the near field, and we applied Huygens' principle. And we asked what effect that has in the electric field in the far field. So I'll remind you, we just took each point in the near field. And for that point, we calculated the electric field that it would produce if it were a point source over here. And then we integrated over the entire near field uh, plane to calculate the sum of all the point sources at P. We use some math, which may be familiar from the homework, where we have an expression where we have to complete the square in order to get it into a form here that we can integrate. 
And we got the result that a Gaussian beam remains a Gaussian beam. In the far field, it has a distribution in angle that's still Gaussian. It's e to the minus, not quite the angle squared, but sine of the angle squared. So at least in the praxial pra approximation where sine theta equals theta, this is still a Gaussian beam. So writing the irradiance, which is proportional to this quantity squared, we have an expression and we can ask what is the width, the angular width of this beam? So what angle does this, does this function decrease to e to the minus 2 of its on-axis value? Or what angle does this argument equal minus 2? And again, with the small angle approximation, that was lambda over pi w. So w is the width of the beam in the near field. And then this is the angular width in the far field. And we see the inverse relationship. So the smaller the beam is in the near field, the bigger it is in the far field. The bigger it is in the near field, the less it will spread out in the far field. So this gives rise to some optimization that can be done. Um, let's say you have a collimated Gaussian beam. Okay, so that's the output of a typical laser. It can be treated as a collimated Gaussian beam. And it's traveling to a, dis a target a distance L away. That target could be um, maybe you're doing laser communication between satellites or between buildings. Um, or it might just be a laser pointer and you're pointing it at a screen, something like that. And you want to minimize the spot size a distance L away. So basically, you want the light focused onto the, the thing that you're trying to illuminate. So if you want to minimize the size at a distance L, and we'll assume that we're, well, we're not going to assume we're in the far field. Um, how big should the spot size be in the near field? So how big should the spot be that you send out? So let's see, I block this. What's the advantage to sending out a large spot? It doesn't spread out as much. What's the disadvantage to sending out a large spot? It's a large spot. Right, you're not, if it's collimated and it's large, it's spreading out. It's never going to be smaller than what it started as. Okay, you could focus it so that it's not collimated, but it's actually getting smaller. But in our case, we have a collimated beam. So there's an optimization. Right? If you make it too large, then you're not going to have spreading, but you've already got a beam that's too large. If you make it too small, then it's going to spread out too much. OK, so in the far field, where the length is greater than the Rayleigh length, then the spot size is going to be approximately equal to the angular spread of the spot times the distance away you are. And we found the angular spread was lambda over pi times the beam size in the near field. So we multiply that by L. And this gives us an expression for the radial spot size. This is half of the diameter. but It's the uh, measure of the spot size in the far field. And so this clearly suggests that you want the size in the near field to be large. You want w naught to be large to get small spreading. But of course, like we said, if w naught is too big, the target won't be in the far field, meaning the beam won't have spread out much but you've still got a big size, so the initial size will dominate. So if you balance these two effects and you ask, um, how big does the beam need to be such that the amount that it spreads is equal to the original size? That's, that's uh, an equal balance of these two effects. That was, if you remember, that was the same uh, criterion we used for determining where the far field was. We said, how far do you have to go until the beam spreading equals its original size? Here we're not solving this in terms of how far you go. We're solving it in terms of how big the spot needs to be. But if we relate this to w naught, then we can solve for w naught. It's the square root of lambda l over pi. So there's an optimal size.
Okay, so we've done this analysis using Huygens' principle. And we actually did the analysis before already um, in chapter 9 when we did Fourier transforms. So I want to point out the similarities here. So in chapter 9, we did an example where we had a slit. Um, and we didn't exactly state the, the physics involved and how you go from this slit to this diffraction pattern. But we said that um, the diffraction pattern was the Fourier transform of the slit without motivating that. And so we calculated the Fourier transform of a function that was 0 and then 1 within some, some length L and then 0. So a top hat function. We calculate the, calculated the Fourier transform. We said that if the variable which we were transforming was y, the Fourier transform variable would be k sub y. So we got an expression that looked like sinc of k sub y L over 2. And what that means, what, what the k sub y, the way we can interpret that is um, if the light has a particular wavelength and it has a particular k vector, in k sub y is the amount of that vector pointing in the y direction. Meaning in the paraxial approximation, k sub y is like the base of, or is the base of this triangle, I guess the height of that triangle. k naught is the hypotenuse of the triangle for light illuminating a certain point. And the ratio of those two things is approximately theta, the angle. So we could write k sub y is equal to k naught sine theta. And over here, when we did the, the calculation of the far field diffraction pattern using Huygens' principle, we got an expression, a little hard to read, but for the intensity that was a sinc function of beta, where beta was kb over 2 sine theta. Okay, so b was the slit width. Over here, l was the slit width. And the intensity was sinc squared ky l over 2. So we have l over 2 here. We have b over 2 here. And here we have k sine theta. And here we have ky. Right, so once again, for light propagating off-axis, ky is k sine theta. So these expressions are exactly the same. Or at least the form is exactly the same. Um, when we did it here, we ended up with an expression for what the, uh, what the on-axis intensity is, which we did not I don't think we calculated over there. And then likewise, for the Gaussian function, you had a problem in your homework, which was just calculate the Fourier transform of a Gaussian pulse. So that was a temporal pulse, a function of time that rises and then falls in time. And the result was a Fourier transform, which means a function of frequency that was also Gaussian. And now when we do this using Huygens principle, we had a Gaussian beam. It was a Gaussian function of space, not time. In our case, it was a Gaussian function of y prime. And so our transform variable wasn't omega, but it was k, or k sub y in this case. And so we got this expression for the electric field at point p which is also a Gaussian. And if we compare this form, this argument in the Gaussian, to that argument in the Gaussian, we find that they're completely analogous. So if we relate the uh, width that we had here, which we called w, to the width we have over here, which is sigma over the square root of 2, then when we take the transforms, we get the exact same expressions. Okay, So there's this analogy. And we can see where it comes from mathematically. If we look at the form for the spatial Fourier transform, so this is taken right out of the book. The book gives it in terms of a function of t, and the Fourier transform is a function of omega. I've just changed variables here. We have a function of y, and the Fourier transform is a function of ky. Okay, so this is the definition of a Fourier transform. 
And when we use Huygens' principle, when we did it for a slit, our expression looks something like this. This was the amplitude of the field. We were integrating over the slit. And this was the phase that the light acquired, going from a point in the uh, aperture plane to our, our final position. And so we could write this more generally as integrating over the entire aperture times the electric field evaluated at that aperture. And in the case of a slit, it was uniform and only existed from minus b over 2 to plus b over 2. In the case of a Gaussian, it was a Gaussian distribution and existed over all space. And then the phase that is acquired, I can write k sine theta as k sub y. And then I have an expression down here, which I can compare to my expression for the Fourier transform. This is the electric field evaluated at the aperture. And this is the function evaluated as a function of space. Okay, so the electric field evaluated at the aperture is the function that we're taking the Fourier transform of. This is the phase shift that the light acquires going from the aperture to the point I'm evaluating. And this is the phase shift that this particular frequency component has. And they're exactly the same form. And here I'm integrating over y. Here I'm integrating over y prime. But those variables have the same place in that, those equations. So this form is exactly the same as this form. Okay, So indeed, the far field diffraction pattern is just the Fourier transform of the near field electric field function. Which means all that math you did to try to calculate Fourier transforms could be done by printing out the function on a transparency, sticking it in front of a laser, and taking a picture of the far field pattern. <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting you know, that nature can do, you know, nature knows the answers. No matter how hard it is to calculate, nature just knows the answers. And there's certain situations where it just produces the answers pretty much straightforward for anyone to see um, if you know that that's what it's, what it's doing. OK, so that was all diffraction in one dimension. Uh, we really don't deal with too many one-dimensional objects, so we can generalize this to two dimensions. Um, in terms of things that are, have rectilinear geometry or can be described in Cartesian coordinates, it's pretty straightforward. Um, if you have, for example, a window, a rectangular window instead of a slit, you can think of that as a slit in x and a slit in y superimposed. And so what you get is the diffraction pattern of a slit in x and the same diffraction pattern in y. Right? And these can have different, different spreads based on the height of the window versus the width of the window. Just like your Christmas tree. Yes, just like the Christmas tree. We saw that already. So we had um, the, the, the weave of the fabric was, was a cross pattern. And so we saw in X and Y a diffraction pattern. Oftentimes in photographs, particularly photographs of stars and astrophysical objects, you will see a dot that represents the star. And then you'll sort of see, I guess what we would call that sort of star pattern. You'll see this, this flare around that spot in the photograph. So are you familiar with that? And oftentimes, you'll see these sort of six lines. What does that tell you about the camera that took the picture? Yeah, there's a diffraction pattern. And it comes from the iris that's inside of the lens. So typically, um, a camera will have an aperture that you can open or close to let more or less light in. That's the F number dial on your camera if you have a, an SLR. And those irises uh, typically are, and they're not round, they're sort of a bunch of blades. I don't know, think Star Trek and the doors that they walk through. Right? They're, they're like a six-sided thing that you know, each one of these pivots and so swings down. So you always have this hexagonal shape. And the, the size of that can be varied. And because you have this sort of 60-degree geometry, you get these 60-degree diffraction patterns. OK, so I'm not going to say anything more about the two-dimensional 
Cartesian coordinate diffraction pattern. I think the book explains explicitly how you take the, the product of the x component and the product of the y component and you just transform them individually. But uh, I want to talk about circular apertures. So we saw one of these. Um, the iris over there, we were treating as a circular, circular pattern, although we see here it's probably not perfectly circular. But um, we tend to get circular diffraction patterns. This is just like what we saw on the screen. And we can benefit a lot from understanding the uh, size of this airy disk. Because a lot of imaging systems have circular optics, produce circular diffraction patterns. And in order to understand the resolution of the imaging systems, we need to understand the size of that airy disk. Okay, so the math is a little more complicated than it was in one dimension. But um, it's doable, and it introduces us to Bessel functions. So I'm guessing you've seen Bessel functions probably in uh, like 105, maybe in 110. 110? OK. So you must not have done uh, modes on a beating drum in 105. So you do modes on a string. You get sinusoidal standing waves. If you were to do the modes on a round drum, you'd get Bessel function standing waves. But um, anyhow, this isn't either of those classes. So let's do it our own way. Um, let's look at a circular aperture over here. And let's calculate the far field diffraction pattern. So assume that this, this plane is far away. Then we're going to do the same analysis we did before. Uh, we'll treat it as a Huygens calculation, although we see now that we, this is essentially a Fourier transform. So we'll pick a point here in the aperture plane. We'll calculate the amplitude and phase of the electric field it produces over here at a point P in the image plane. And then we'll add up the contribution from all the points on the aperture. Okay, so the distance between these two planes I'm going to call capital R. And the distance between these two points I'm going to call little r. And so assuming that this aperture is small, then little r and big R are approximately the same, or at least in terms of um, the radial decrease in the field, they're the same. So I'm going to call the amplitude of the field at the image plane whatever the amplitude was in the aperture plane divided by big R. Okay, really, it should be divided by little r, but they're approximately the same. I'm going to call it big R there. And then there's a phase shift, because this is a traveling wave. It gets a phase shift e to the i omega t minus k dot r. Right, the omega t part is not going to factor into this integral. It doesn't depend on space, so that will factor out. Um, we have to evaluate what this k dot r looks like. It's just what that is is um, the k vector along this r, how many wavelengths that r is. OK, so k dot r is just k times the radial distance, or this, this distance little r. And so if we write this in Cartesian coordinates, this distance is z, then we have x and y. Right, so it should be z squared plus the change in x squared plus the change in y squared. And here, x and y are the points on the image plane. x prime and y prime are the points on the aperture plane. And so the change in x is x minus x prime. The change in y is y minus y prime. Okay, so this is just Pythagorean theorem, or the hypotenuse of a three-dimensional triangle from here to here. OK, so we can expand these squared factors. So this is an x squared plus an x prime squared plus a cross term, 2x x prime. And likewise, for the y terms, we get y squared, y prime squared, 2y y prime. Is there a minus? That should be minus, yeah. Those should be minus. These two terms should be minuses. So um, we can just replace this sign with a minus here. Um, so now I'm going to do a couple things. This z distance, 
was the distance between the planes, which I'm going to call capital R. So I'm going to replace z squared with capital R squared. And then I'm going to uh, group a couple terms here. I'm going to say, I'm going to factor out an R squared from all these terms. Okay, so z squared is equal to r squared. So when I factor out the r squared, that's just 1. Um, the 2x x prime and the 2y y prime terms don't have an r squared in them. So I have to divide them by r squared if I factor out an r squared. Okay, so these terms here represent the cross terms. And then this x prime squared and y prime squared, again, don't have a factor of r, so I'm going to divide them by r squared, but I can multiply them by r squared. And at this moment, I'm noticing a little bit of an inconsistency in my diagram. Um, I've actually said that x squared plus y squared plus z squared is r squared. This should probably be little r, not big R. In the end, it's not going to matter because I'm going to say they're approximately equal. Um, z squared is big R squared. x squared plus y squared plus z squared is little r squared, according to this diagram. And, and and well, in this, I have an, there's an error here. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to say that error in the end isn't going to matter. Okay, but just recognize that I called x squared plus y squared plus z squared big R squared. Uh, what I should do is I should call z squared big R squared. And the y squared and z squared I should just add on as terms over here. In the end, I'm going to neglect these terms. Okay, so. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a Taylor series approximation to this square root. So if you have the square root of 1 plus a small number, that's approximately equal to 1 plus 1 half of that number. So uh, it should be 1 minus because the sign was, was wrong there. Yeah. But so in general. So these, these are the first, first two terms of a Taylor series approximation. And I can, what I'll do is I'll take this r squared, I'll factor that out. So that's k times big R. And then in parentheses, I have 1 plus. And now everything else I have is a small number. Because I have x times x prime. And those are both distances away from the axis. And if I'm assuming everything's paraxial, I'm assuming everything's close to the axis. And that's being divided by r squared, which is the distance between these. In the far field, that distance is large. And likewise for x prime and y prime. So all these other terms are small. So I'm going to write them as 1 half. I'm going to treat them as my x here. And write this expression as 1 plus 1 half x. Okay, so when I do that, I'm then going to neglect these terms over here. Um, these terms over here are smaller than these terms if my, because they're, if I have a small aperture, x prime and y prime are the sizes, the positions inside the aperture. For our experiment over here, I had an aperture that was like 100 microns wide, and I had a, a pattern over here that was centimeters wide. Okay, so the distances I'll be dealing with over here typically will be much larger than the distances over here. If they're not, I'm not in the far field. Yes, but those are basically the same assumption. Having one requires the other. And so um, I get my kr times 1 plus kr times 1 half of this term. 
So that is 1 half cancels the 2's, and the r cancels one of the r's in the denominator. So I get this expression here then as an approximation for k dot r. Okay, so k dot r is approximately equal to how far away the aperture, the number of wavelengths from the aperture to the mask times 2 pi. That's what this is. Plus some correction due to the fact that I'm off axis here and I'm off axis there. And that should be, yeah, these should be minuses, not pluses. And so I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do the integration in cylindrical coordinates. So I'm going to change variables here. And I'm going to describe this point over here, xy, not in terms of x and y, but in terms of some radius from the optical axis, which I'll call q, and some angle theta. And then, likewise, in this plane, I will have a radius. It's not drawn on the slide, but I'll call it rho. And I'll call the angle um, that angle should actually be phi. Wait, no, I'm integrating. So this angle would be phi. The angle with respect to some, some axis. So if I do that, x equals q cosine theta, y equals q sine theta. Um, so I make those substitutions for x and x prime. And I can cast my integral into the form e to the i k rho q over r cosine phi. I have to change the limits of the integration as well. I'm integrating over all angles from 0 to a, where a is the radius of this aperture. So it's integrating over the entire aperture. Now, this integral. Is, has a form that actually pops up a lot in physics. So let me call this term in parentheses u, and I'll call phi v. Then the integral can be expressed more simply like this. This, since it pops up so frequently, and it's not, it's not a form that can be simplified at all. You can't calculate this integral and get some simpler expression. So we give this function a name. That's the first order Bessel function of the first kind, or j sub 0. And it's a function of u. It's a function of u because v gets integrated over. So the v gets integrated over, and the u remains. So you can look that up in a book. It's just like when you learn what sine and cosine are. They're functions that are determined, that are described in terms of you probably learned it in terms of um, sides of triangles on a circle, something like that. And that definition may not have lent any insight to what the functional form would look like. If you say the sine is the opposite side of a triangle over the hypotenuse, that doesn't tell you what it looks like as a function of angle. But you can plot it as a function of angle. You can look at those plots, and after a while, you start to recognize that sines are wavy functions. Well, same thing with Bessel functions. You may not look at this and, and be able to see right off the bat what shape that function should have, but you can plot it, and it has a shape like this. I should note that you can define sine in a similar way. Right? You can define sine as, for example, related to the integral of cosine. This Bessel function is the integral of some function. So. Well, you can integrate it numerically. So you can calculate values, but there's no analytical form. 
without defining this integral as this. If you do that, then the integral is the Bessel function. Okay, so here is a plot of j naught of u. Um, it's an oscillatory function, but it's not periodic. So these zero crossings aren't at regular intervals. Um, and it's exponentially decaying. So it will get smaller and smaller as you get further and further away from zero. So we can write this angular integral as the Bessel function. And then we just have to integrate this Bessel function from zero to A. So how do you do that? Well, there's a property of Bessel functions called the recursion relationship that relates the derivative of the mth order Bessel function to the value of the m minus 1th order Bessel function. Okay, so if m equals 1, this term over here is j0, the 0th order Bessel function. And this term over here is the 1st order Bessel function, j sub 1. If we integrate both sides, we get that j sub 1 is related to the integral of j sub 0. And we've got the integral of j sub 0. So when we integrate that, we get something that's proportional to j sub 1 through this recursion relationship. So you can think of it as this function j sub 1 is defined as the integral of j sub naught. Or it's defined as uh, related to the integral of j sub naught through this recursion relationship. And so using that functional form, then we can write that integral as j sub 1. And here we had j sub 1 of u, where u was k rho q over r. So using this relationship, we have j sub 1 of k a q over r. We're evaluating this at a. We're evaluating the rho at a. So k a q over r. And then the u that we have out here in front, we have to include as well. So we have a kaq over r there. So this gives us a final form for the expression of the electric field. And when we square that, we get a function for the irradiance. So we take the absolute value of this squared. That gets rid of these phase terms. And like we had before, we have a term which depends on the area of the aperture. So when we did this for a Gaussian beam, we had a term that looked like the area of the Gaussian beam and the irradiance. At the, uh, at, the, at the aperture plane. It decays as r squared. So the further away you get, the uh, less irradiance you have. And then because we have j1 squared, we have j1 of x squared over x squared. Remember sine of x squared over sine x squared we called sinc squared. Sometimes this is referred to as jinx squared. Um, and what's the value of sinc of 0? Sine of 0 over 0. It's 1. The value of jinx squared, or j1, 0 over 0, is turns out to be uh, 1 half. So when you square that, you get a quarter. So we have a factor of 4 over here, so that i naught represents the uh, the intensity at the aperture plane. OK, so this shares a lot of the same properties of the solution for a slit. It has these sinusoidal oscillations. Um, and by the way, this is Bessel function J1. So like J0, it's, it's oscillatory. 
unlike J naught, it doesn't go to zero. It doesn't. Its value at zero is zero. J naught started at a constant value, and then oscillated. Okay, so if we look at J1 of u over u, it has a maximum value of 1 half, and then this oscillatory, or yeah, oscillatory behavior. So we take this and we square it, we get a bunch of lobes and a bunch of points where there's going to be no intensity. Right? At center, lobe we call the airy disk. And these points where it crosses through 0 are the dark rings on the diffraction pattern. Okay, so rewriting this a little bit, you can just clean up a lot of this uh, prefactor by calling it the intensity on axis. And then we can write this in terms of the, the angle from the optical axis. The angle from the optical axis is approximately Q over R. Remember, Q is the radial distance in the uh, image plane, and R was the distance away. So Q over R is sine theta. And then just like we did for the diffraction pattern from a single slit, we can ask, where is this 0? Where is the first 0? And that will define sort of a width, for an angular width for this diffraction pattern. Okay, So we have to evaluate, uh, we have to figure out where j1 is equal to 0. And you can't, or you probably don't know that off the top of your head. We generally have to look it up. We know where sine of x is equal to 0, because it's periodic. It's 0 every multiple of pi. But the Bessel functions aren't periodic. So these zeros occur at different spacings. So there are tables that you can look these up in. And the first one occurs at 3.8, about 3.8 about 3.85, and it's, and it's a transcendental number, so you have to pick a certain number of digits to count that as. And so if we set, there it is, 3.83. So if we set this argument equal to 3.83, we can solve for the angle at which the first dark ring is, or the width of the, the airy disk. So we'll set 3.83 equal to Ka sine theta. And we'll approximate theta as sine theta. And we'll write K as 2 pi over lambda. And then we're looking for the angle at which this occurs. This is the first 0. So I'm going to call that theta sub 1. It's the first angle at which there's a dark ring. And I'm going to write this as 3.83 over pi times 1 over 2a times lambda. So if a was the radius of my aperture, 2a is the diameter. And if I evaluate 3.83 over pi, that's approximately 1.22. Okay, so you'll, I write it in this form because this is, this is a common form in which you'll see. The form that you will commonly see, because it is the way that the resolution of an imaging system is typically expressed. So we'll, we'll see what I mean by that in a second. Um, so here's a calculated image of what the far-field diffraction pattern should look like. That's pretty much what we saw when we looked at it through the, with the laser. And so if we had um, an imaging system that was trying to observe, say, two stars that are closely spaced or 
have close angular separation in the sky, then we would need the image from those two stars to be separate on our film. So we would need the diffraction pattern produced by the two stars to be resolvable, to somehow be uh, further apart than the size of the diffraction pattern. Okay, if they're closer together than the size of the diffraction pattern, what we see is just one sort of one big blob of intensity, and we can't tell whether that's a single diffraction pattern or two. Okay, so the criteria, I guess the criterion that's uh, most commonly used for when they're further, far enough apart to resolve is when the, um, the first zero of one overlaps at the peak of the other. Okay, that's when the diffraction patterns are separated by one angular radius. And when that's the case, then you get a, a dip in the center here that's observable. It dips about 20% above the peak value. Okay, so the angular separation needs to be greater than the angular width of the diffraction pattern in order to be resolvable. So that is 1.22 lambda over d. And this is, this is a formula that's uh, commonly used to describe the resolution of an imaging system. So in order to have good resolution, or in order to improve the resolution of an imaging system, you need to either increase the diameter of your optics. That can be, I mean, there's limits to how large you can generally make optics, whether they be financial constraints or whether they be physical constraints to how big a telescope you can send up in the in a rocket or how big a telescope you can manufacture and, and have the optical tolerances met over the entire surface. Um, or you need to make the wavelength smaller. Right? So generally that's not something you have control over. If you're taking a photograph, you probably want to use visible light as your wavelength, so you don't have control over that. Um, if you're doing astronomy, you may have reasons for wanting to look at microwaves or gamma rays or whatever region of the spectrum, but you get much better resolution with the higher frequency waves because you have shorter wavelengths and, and better angular resolution. Okay, so let's do a, let's see what this looks like first on a ray diagram. So here's an object that has some spatial extent delta x, um, and it subtends some angle, so if it's a distance L away from my lens, the angle it subtends is delta x over L in the paraxial approximation. And if we look at the rays that pass through the center of the lens, they're undeviated. So when we go one focal length away, their diffraction patterns will be separated by F times delta theta. And we can say that that needs to be at least 1.22 lambda over D that angular spread needs to be at least 1.22 lambda over d. And then we can ask if that's the spread, how small an object can the system detect? OK, so spy satellites, Google images, all this stuff taken from satellites in space have limited resolution, despite what the TV shows show you. And you know, the superior says, zoom in on that. Zoom in further. Zoom in further, 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 further. <laughs> they just keep getting closer and closer. Um, there's limits to the resolution. So let's take a typical spy satellite telescope, one meter diameter aperture. That's pretty typical. Uh, satellites are launched generally not in the space shuttle, but in. Well, OK, for satellites, just for imaging satellites, maybe not for spy satellites. But I mean, you can pretty, pretty easily figure out, like, what are the launch vehicles that go up there? How big a payload can you fit in them? And there you go. Well, you can do that. You can, you can piece together multiple mirrors as long as they're positioned accurately. And accurately means to within a fraction of a wavelength. Otherwise, you get aberrations. So there's experiments that are designed that will have segmented mirrors. But the alignment and control of where those mirrors have to be is a very difficult problem. It's not just pasting them together like a collage. It's really controlling their position 
accurately to a fraction of a wavelength. Yeah, and the further away they get, the better resolution you would have. You'd have an increased effective diameter. You wouldn't necessarily increase the amount of, pop of light that you detect by making them further apart, but you'd increase the uh, diffraction limit. So, okay, let's, let's assume we just have a single mirror, one meter diameter, circular mirror, in low Earth orbit, that's about 145 kilometers. That's the cheap orbit. If you want to send something up into orbit, you're going to spend a lot more money to get it higher up. DirecTV, Dish Network, send, spend a lot of money to get their satellites into geosynchronous orbit. Um, GPS receivers are not that high. The, uh, you wouldn't want a satellite that high if it's doing imagery. You'd rather have it low so it's closer, get better resolution. Um, so what is the resolution of objects on the surface? Okay, so we know delta theta is 1.22 lambda over d. And we assume we're looking at visible light, where the wavelength is, say, 500 nanometers, the center of the visible spectrum. The diameter of my telescope is one meter. That gives me an angular resolution, which I'm just going to leave as delta theta min. I'm going to have an object on the surface of the Earth that has a size delta x. This is the minimum size that I can detect. It will subtend an angle delta min, delta theta min, and it's located a distance uh, 145 kilometers away. So if I know delta theta min, which I can calculate, and I know how far away it is, I can solve for delta x. And so, if you do that, you get about 9 centimeters. So you can't see, you can't recognize faces. Uh, you can't read license plates. You can almost read license plates. You can see cars. You can see people. But you can't tell who they are. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, that's the best case scenario for a one meter telescope. If you want to do better, you have to go to bigger telescopes. And bigger telescopes means bigger launch vehicles. Right, so there's always these constraints. But uh, that's, that's one example. We'll look at a few more examples next time. We'll ask, is your eye diffraction limited? You might want to think about that. Um, you might be surprised by the result. And then, uh, and then we'll uh, go on and...